Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Isaiah. The passage that we just read from Isaiah chapter 1 describes a, a quarrel between mankind and his maker. And it's a sad thing to think that the creature would have fallen out with his creator. Actually, it's a great insult that man who is so dependent upon the goodness of God should have, as it were, bitten the hand that feeds him. And yet it is so. Mankind has turned away from God's commandments. We have rebelled against the Lord. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Now under such circumstances, it is a wonderful demonstration of God's grace and mercy that he would be willing to appeal to man, to invite rebellious man to a conference, to, to have a conference with him, to come together to resolve this dispute, as is mentioned in verse 18. Now, of course, the first person to re request such a conference should be the offending party. The one who did the wrong should take the first step to make things right. But just like it was in the Garden of Eden, instead of man running to God, instead of man seeking God, instead of coming to God with tears of repentance, praying, please forgive me. Just like the Garden of Eden, we see the same thing here. We see it's God that comes seeking man. It's the one who is offended who takes the initiative and takes the first step to restore the relationship, resolve the problem. It's God who says, come now and let us reason together. These people had sinned against God. They provoked him to anger time and time again, just like we have. And justice would demand... That the thunder and lightning bolts of God's wrath and judgment would fall upon them and us immediately. But instead God invited them and God invites us to come and to reason with him about the situation. I'd like to draw your attention firstly to what... We have in verse 18 is actually a remarkable call. A remarkable call. Look at verse 18. God calls, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. This call is remarkable when you think about it. Not just because of the one who issues the call. Not just the one who sends out the appeal, but because of the ones to whom this call is made. Those people are described in the beginning of the chapter as being utterly senseless. You'll notice back in verse 2 that the Lord doesn't begin addressing his complaint to the people directly. He calls upon the heavens and the earth to hear his complaint. He speaks to the earth. He speaks to the heavens. He speaks to the sun, the moon and the stars. He demands that they listen because... The people had become so deaf to his admonitions. 
they had become so deaf to his call that they are totally unlikely to hear the heavens and the earth, the inanimate things of creation are more likely to hear this appeal than utterly senseless man. And what an indictment of mankind. What an indictment of people like you and me who are born with two ears and yet deaf to the word of God. There is not a day that goes by when God doesn't speak and continues to speak through his word. There's not a day that goes by when God is not speaking by his spirit. And it is for what, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever, however old you are, that up until this point in time, all your life, you haven't been, haven't been listening to God. Notice then that this call also goes out to those who are totally ungrateful. Verse 2 continues. The Lord says, I've nourished and brought up children and they've rebelled against me. And what an accurate description that is of many of us. God has been good to us from the days of our youth, from the earliest days of our childhood. God has been good to us. We weren't born as slaves. We weren't born and left to die upon the street. God provided for our needs. Maybe it's not all that we could have wished, but certainly it was all that we needed. And the dawning of our days was just the rising of God's mercy and grace towards us. And yet as children, we, we rebelled against God in childish ways. And now that we have grown to adulthood, we've sinned against the Lord in rebellious ways. We've broken his commandments. We've blasphemed his name. We've rejected his love. We've shaken our fist in his face. We've forgotten his mercies. His mercies which are heaped down upon us daily. We're not consumed because of the mercies of God. And the fact that we're not consumed, we just use this as an opportunity to go on further and further in our sinful ways. And we've taken the gifts of God's grace, his graciousness towards us and used them as excuses for our wickedness. There are many people today who stand condemned because their life, all their life, they've been ungrateful to a God who's been so good to them and patient and kind and loving and bountiful. And yet to such people, the Lord says, come now, let us reason together. That's a remarkable call that goes out. Not only does God extend this gracious call to those who are utterly senseless and totally ungrateful. But also that call goes out to those who are described here as being worse than beasts. Verse 3 continues. The ox knoweth his owner. And the ass his master's crib. But Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. You know, sometimes I think we do a disservice to the domesticated beasts of the earth by describing wicked and vulgar people as being like under animals. But the beasts of the field, are they really such sinners? Don't they bow their necks, submit their necks? Don't they submissively wear the yoke of man to do man's bidding? Do they argue against the law of God, which says that man shall have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the beast of the field? No. If people were half obedient, as obedient to God as animals are to man, then be, there'd be a lot less sin in us. But this verse tells us that these people hadn't served God as well as 
the ox served his master. They hadn't recognised God as much as an ass recognises his own, his master's feeding crib. Most of you probably don't own a horse. But if you did, would you keep it for a year? Would you keep it for 10 years? Would you keep it for 20 years? If it just continually bucked against you and bit you and kicked you and did all it could to maim you. And yet these people, God has cared for them for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is. He's put breath in their nostrils, bread in their mouth, clothes upon their back, money in their pockets, blessings in their lives daily. Yet they've done nothing but curse him and mock his word and ridicule his work and persecute his servants. Don't you think it is therefore quite a remarkable call that God sends out appealing to these people, these people sending out this call, come and let us reason together. Not only are these people worse than beasts, but they're also described here as being laden with iniquity. Verse 4, it says, Our sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. These people here are described as being so pressed down, loaded up and pressed down, that they cannot make any progress whatsoever. These people have heaped so much sin upon themselves that they, they couldn't go forward. Their sins have been so much part of their nature, they're not able to be separated from it. It's like an ingrained stain that can't be removed. And if they have any thought of turning to God and following the ways of the Lord and obeying his commandments, their sins, it's like a ball and chain around their ankles, it's like a, a millstone around about their neck. They're laden with iniquity. Worse than that, they're even unresponsive to punishment. Verse 5 says, Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. God had chastened them, yet they wouldn't repent of their sin. Their sins couldn't be drawn from them. They couldn't be driven from their sins. God had afflicted them. God had punished them, but to no effect. Maybe you've seen the situation where a child has been firmly disciplined and yet as quick as you can blink they just go back to doing the same thing for which they were punished and yet how many of us are just like that we've been chastened of the Lord at various times but we haven't profited by it maybe there was a time when you had a brush with death you barely escaped with your life perhaps an accident or a near accident or some illness and in a moment of desperation, in a crisis moment, he said, please God, save me, deliver me. If you do, I'll be a different person. We make such pledges and it's true, we become a different person. We become worse than we were before. We go even further in our sinfulness. We're chastened and punished, but it has no effect upon us. And maybe to this day, you know, the, the memory of such an event still pains us. And it's there as a reminder of God's grace and mercy towards us, but... The benefit that God intended for is just lost on us totally. Unresponsive. We just revolt more and more. Verse 5 and 6 continue to tell us furthermore that these people are totally depraved. In the middle of verse 5 we read, The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. 
From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointments. The sinfulness of the soul is described as being horrific disease in the body. That's the way that God sees sin. Perhaps, perhaps that's the way that you see yourself today. Perhaps you see yourself as being so defiled by sin, so corrupted by sin that you, you wonder why, you know, why the roof didn't cave in when you walked in here this evening. Or why it is that anyone who is a Christian friend could continue in their friendship with you or why they persist in praying for you. Perhaps you understand that you've gone so far into sin that you, you can't go any further. You're as damnable as a person could be. And yet to the vilest of the vile, this remarkable and gracious call goes out from God. Come, come now, let us reason together. This remarkable call is certainly intended for great sinners because if you look in verse 10, it's given to people who are described as Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the wickedest cities on the earth in the day. Bible says that their sin went up to heaven. They were so corrupt upon the earth that the stench of their sin rose up to heaven. That was the true condition of these people back then. And this was the true condition of people who thought they could atone for their sins by being religious. If you look in verses 10 through 15, we see how religious these people had become. Verse 11, they offered sacrifices. Verse 12, they attended worship. Verse 13, they offered, they, they, they observed special days. They celebrated rituals. Verse 14, they attended religious feasts. Verse 15, they would pray. They would even pray in public. But none of those things could atone for their sin. And this is the danger of religion. This is the danger of religion because it blinds us to our true condition. It fools us into thinking that our religious activities make us acceptable to God. But our sins are an offence to God and the situation is only made worse by us thinking that we can make ourselves righteous. And yet in graciousness God sends out this call to sinful people who are for some inexplicable reason think they're self-righteous. God says no, come, come. Let us reason together. I want you to notice the second part of verse 18 goes on to talk about a radical cleansing. And that's our second major point, a radical cleansing. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A radical cleansing is offered here because a radical cleansing is required. Notice that sin here is being described as, as scarlet and like crimson. Our iniquities are like blood-coloured stains on our soul. Scarlet and crimson in Isaiah's days were... The firmest of dyes, colours virtually impossible to remove from any fabric. Neither dew nor rain nor any other process of bleaching can remove 
those stains. You destroy the fabric because before you could possibly extract the dye. There might be some people here tonight who's thinking, well, that's exactly my, that's exactly my situation. My problem is that I'm too great a sinner. Well, friend, the good news is that your difficulty is addressed right here. It says, though your sins be as scarlet, though your sins be that great, God says they can be as white as snow. And perhaps you might say, well, like, yeah, I'm such a great sinner and I've been such a great sinner for such a long time. Maybe that is true. And yet your condition is also included here. The verse goes on to say, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The colouring process referred to here would mean that a cloth is made to soak in dye for a very, very long time. And then it would be removed and then it would be dyed again until every fibre of the fabric is taken up with the colour. Maybe you think yourself just like that. You say, I'm deeply dyed in sin. I'm deeply affected by it. I'm double dyed in it for a long time. It may be that you've allowed your body and your soul to be soaked in sin. So that from the top of your head to the sole of your foot, totally affected. And yet even if you are like that, God says he can make you white as snow. Or as wool. The Lord can remove the stain. Perfectly. Notice that the Lord doesn't deny the sinner's guilt. Now, a lot of people try to do that. They try to deny the sin so they can avoid the blame. They try to excuse the sin. So they can avoid the pain. They try to conceal the sin. So they can avoid the shame. And when the Holy Spirit and your conscience begin to convict you and you feel convict you, you begin to feel this guilt of sin. You know, some people have this idea that they need to deny such feelings of guilt so they don't have to face up to the fact that they're sin. They don't have to admit it. And modern psychologists tell us that this guilt is a groundless emotion. Something that has the potential of taking all the fun out of life. Listen to what one of them says. It says, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny. When you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish or rotten, never mind the result of that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh or clay feet. You did wrong and the guilt is killing you too bad. But rest assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant. We don't and we don't need any more of it in the world. Now, at best, that counsel is unbiblical. At worst, it's quite devilish. Because the answer is guilt is not for us just to deny it. The answer for us is not just to ignore it. Neither does God address the matter of sin by denying our guilt or, deny, or, or ignoring our guilt. God deals with the problem of our guilt by removing it. He deals with the problem of our sin, causing the guilt by cleansing the sin. That's God's solution. And how does he do that? Well, this text doesn't tell us how the cleansing comes about. It merely gives us the assurance that God will certainly do it. But if you turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, 
we can see how the Lord goes about it. Turn over, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah wrote this about the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before Jesus was born. And yet how accurately does Isaiah depict Jesus Christ here? He predicts Jesus Christ. He depicts what Jesus Christ will do and accomplish. Look at verse 7. He, talking about Jesus, says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He is taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation, for he is cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Remarkable prophecies telling us about the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Check the details in the New Testament. This reads just like the Gospels. These prophecies remarkably, precisely fulfilled by Jesus. But look at what else it says in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastened, the chastisement. He was chastened so that we can have peace. And by his stripes, with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, the Father, hath laid on him, Jesus the iniquity of us all. Look at the last part of verse 8. It's for the transgression of my people that Jesus was stricken. Verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus made an offering for sin. Verse 11. He that's God the Father shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Last part of verse 12. He's numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Friends, I'm sure that you have heard about Jesus Christ. And I'm sure you've heard about the fact that Jesus died upon the cross. He was crucified. Okay? That's, that's a fact of history. That's a fact of history. But, but let me please, ex give me a moment to explain what's happening. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what Jesus was doing in that moment when he died upon the cross. What is happening when Jesus is dying upon the cross is all of our sin. All of our transgression, all of our iniquity, all of the wrong things we have ever done, ever thought, ever done. All of that was placed upon Jesus Christ at that moment. This is what's happening. All of our sin is placed upon Jesus Christ and he takes the punishment that we deserve. The punishment that, is, that we deserve for our sin, Jesus took that for us. All of our sin, all of our wickedness. All the filthy stuff that makes God sicken at the thought of man. He scrapes it all together. All the corruption of sin, enough to pollute the whole universe. He lays it all upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ bears our sin. He takes it all upon himself as if it was his own. But it's not his, it's ours. 
He takes all of our sin upon his, on himself and then he dies in our place. He takes the judgment that we deserve. He dies for you. He dies for me. The Apostle Peter says this, in his own self bore our sins in his own body upon the tree. What Jesus did on the cross, on the tree, he's bearing our sins. He's taking our sins upon himself and being punished for it. God's son, Jesus Christ, took our place so that we could be saved. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we don't have to take it. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we can go free. He took the judgment that we deserve so that we could be cleansed and forgiven, made white as snow. This is the most wonderful thing. This is the most wonderful message. But a lot of people, indeed most people, don't seem interested. As a matter of fact, when you talk to a lot of people about this, they don't even seem to care. Isaiah found the same thing in verse 1. He says, Lord, who hath believed our report? This is the thing we're telling to people. This is, we're reporting this to people, but Lord, who's believing it? Back in the days of the Great Depression, in a Missouri man named John Griffith, was the controller of a great railway drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, with him to work. At noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow ships to pass and sat on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly. Suddenly, he was startled by the shrieking of the train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed it was 107. The Memphis Express with 400 passengers on board was roaring towards the raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. Just before throwing the master lever, he glanced down for any ships below. There a sight caught his eyes that caused his heart to leap poundingly into his throat. Greg had slipped from the observation deck and fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, John's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan. But as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew there was no way it could be done. Again, with alarming closeness, the train whistle shrieked in the air. He could hear the clicking of the locomotive wheels on the track. That was his son down there. Yet there were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had to do, so he buried his head in his left arm and pushed the master switch forward. The great massive bridge lowered in place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the bridge. When John Griffith lifted his head, his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading the afternoon papers. Finely dressed ladies in the dining car sipping coffee. Children pushing long spoons in their dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house. And no one looked at the great gearbox. In wrenching agony, John Griffith cried out to the steel train, I sacrifice my son for you people. Don't you care? God sacrificed his son for us. Jesus Christ died in our place so that we could be saved. So that we could be saved from the 
the penalty of our sins, which would be an eternity in hell. Praise the Lord, Jesus didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again, demonstrating to all that he had, in fact, conquered sin. He had, in fact, conquered death. The book of Romans tells us he was delivered because of our offences, but he was raised again for our justification. He died so that we could be, he died because of our sin, but he was raised again so that we could be forgiven and declared righteous. Friends, if Jesus Christ was punished for my sin, that means that I don't have to be punished for it. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my Saviour's wounded hand and then again at mine. Why? Because not only did Jesus die to take away our sin, but in addition to that, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and accept Jesus as our Saviour at that moment, God transfers the righteousness of Christ to us. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For he, that's God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. We understand that. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus made sin for us so that we could be made righteous. Our sin imputed to Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. Exact same thought, the exact same thought is given to us back in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Just go back there. Isaiah 1 18. Notice how it's expressed here. We shall be as white as snow. That's what it says here. Pure white as the virgin snow. Pristine whiteness. We shall be as wool. Fine white linen. Our sins can be so radically cleansed. There's not a shadow of a spot left, not a sign of a sin left upon us. You see, because when a person believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, when someone calls upon the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us, that very moment we're declared righteous in God's sight. And it's as if we've never ever, we've never sinned at all. But as a matter of fact, it's even better than that, because if that's the case, what we would have is, is human righteousness. But we have something even better than that. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's the cleansing that we need. Our third point comes from verses 19 and 20. There we see there's a real consequence. A real consequence. Verse 19 says, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Here the nation of Israel is called upon to respond to God's appeal. And they are told very clearly, verse 19 and 20, they're told very clearly that there will be consequences of their choice. Verse 19, if they respond correctly, God would save them. God would forgive them. If they come to the Lord repentantly, God would forgive their sin. And then he would establish them in the land and cause them to prosper. But verse 20, if they refuse, if they rebel, if they go on in their sinfulness... 
God says he would cause judgment to come upon them. Judgment would fall upon them. And that judgment would be in the form of their enemy coming, attacking them and removing them out of the land. That's the primary interpretation here. But there is an obvious application which is very important to us today. If we are willing and obedient, if we're obedient to the call of God to come to him, if we're obedient to the call of God to turn from our sin and seek his forgiveness, if we're obedient to the call of God, there will be salvation. There will be forgiveness. There will be the cleansing promised in verse 18. But if we refuse, if we refuse God's call, if we refuse God's offer, if we continue to rebel against him, there will be judgment. Judgment will be the consequence. Judgment will be the result. Friend, the choice is yours. It's either salvation or it's judgment. That's the issue you need to settle. Salvation or judgment, which will you choose? You think it would be a rather obvious choice. I mean, doesn't it seem strange to you that some people would choose judgment rather than salvation? How unreasonable are some people that they would be unwilling to be saved from their sin, unwilling to be forgiven of their sin, and willing rather to be cast into the raging flames of eternal damnation? It's almost unthinkable to imagine that a change in the weather may have more impact upon a person's life than the dreaded alternatives of heaven or hell. Hell. How can we begin to describe the horrors of hell for those who refuse God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ? How can we begin to describe or comprehend the horrors of hell? Your heart beating with raging fever. Your pulse rattling at an enormous rate in agony. Your limbs crackling like the martyrs did in the fire. Don't think that anything that happens on earth is worse than what will happen in hell. Hell is not on earth. There's nothing worse on earth than hell. Burning yet unconsumed. Every nerve. A string on which there is this diabolical dirge. Horrible eternal lament. Your soul forever aching. Your body writhing forever. Wailing is perpetual. Flames which are unquenchable. Torment which doesn't diminish. Eternal, uninterrupted. You know, some people will reject the doctrine of hell and everlasting punishment because they don't see how that could be consistent with the goodness of God. Well, there's only one, to, one way to approach that. What does God say in the scriptures? What does God say in the scriptures? Does God teach us about hell in the scriptures? Yes, he does. Well, then that settles it. And we have to accept that and be content to leave with God the vindication of his own consistency. Of course God is good. Why else did he give us his son? Of course God is good. Why else does the gospel go out? Of course God is good. Why are you not consumed at this moment? It's the long suffering of God that's supposed to lead you to repentance. It's the goodness of God that brings you to this moment to hear the gospel again this evening. Of course God is good. He gave his son. 
For you who will not respond to God's call and won't be cleansed from your sin, hell will be the consequence of your choice. Fiction? Not at all. If God be true, if the Bible be true, then what I share with you tonight is true. The message tonight is an appeal to reason. I'm trying to reason with you, to persuade you. But if I can't convince you, let me quote to you God's own words. Words to which he attaches a very solemn oath. God puts his hand upon his own self-existence and says, As I live, saith the Lord. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will ye die? Are you willing? Will you be obedient? Then turn to the Lord now. Come now is the appeal. First two words of verse 18. The Lord would not have you live another moment the way that you are. He says, come now. Let us reason together. The Lord has a whole universe to govern and yet he's willing to have a conference with you now. To receive you if you come to him. Now come now, this very moment, this very moment. Don't put it off till tomorrow. The Lord is always ready and willing to reason with us and who's anxious to seek him. Scripture says says, now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Perhaps you have it in your mind, you know, I'll settle that with God one day. Why not now? I wouldn't like, not even for a minute, to be slung by a slender rope across a yawning cavern. I wouldn't like for five minutes to be stuck in an upstairs room of a burning house. I wouldn't like for a moment... To have a dose of deadly poison in my system. Even if the cure was right there in front of me. Yet if you are unsaved at this moment. Then your position is much more perilous. Than anything I've just described. Were I to die. Then on the basis of the word of God. To be absent from the body. For the Christian is to be present with the Lord. That's the assurance of the inspired word of God. But if you were to die in your sins, the assurance of the same infallible inspired word of God is that you'd spend eternity in hell. Why does the Christian go to heaven and the sinner, unsaved person, go to hell? Because what, the Christian's better than the the non-Christian? Absolutely not. It's because of Jesus Christ. It's because of a response to Jesus Christ. It's a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will say, yes, that's for me. I need that. I desperately need that. I need Jesus as my saviour. Other people say, no, that's not for me. That's the difference between heaven and hell. And heaven and hell are the consequences of such a choice. Don't be unreasonable. Don't be unreasonable. See the reason behind this, the grace behind this, the mercy behind this. See what God is willing to do for you if you'll but come to Christ. I don't know how many times you've heard the gospel before. But it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. It's of the Lord's mercies that he's given you another opportunity this evening.
Please don't presume that God will, be this, God will give you another day, an opportunity tomorrow or next week. We don't know that. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Come now, is what the Lord is saying to you this evening. I pray that you don't resist the call of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious God. And Lord, if we were to receive the due reward of our deeds, Lord, we wouldn't be here this evening. Lord, if you had re rewarded us according to what we truly deserve, Lord, every single one of us would be in hell at this moment. But we thank you that you are gracious. We thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to hear the gospel once more to hear again about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done upon the cross and what he will do for anyone who receives him as saviour. All of our sin taken by Jesus, he's punished for it so that we don't have to be. All of his righteousness given to us as a free gift. Perfect righteousness given to us as a free gift. Lord, thank you for the cleansing which is ours in Christ. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here tonight who doesn't yet know Christ as their saviour, who's still in their sin, lost in their sin. Lost in their sin, but at the right, in, the, in the right place this evening to hear the gospel again. Lord, I do pray that you'd open their eyes. Pray that you'd help them to see how gracious you are to them. And I pray that they wouldn't resist. Pray they wouldn't refuse. But would come to you, accept your gracious offer of salvation this evening. Lord, this is our prayer. We, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.